Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Welcome everybody to our next episode of Dirty Drinks. Uh, how are you today, Dr. Starlin? I am doing well, Sarah. How about yourself? Not too bad. Did you have a good holiday weekend? I did. It was a nice little breather from uh, the regular days sitting here taking, uh, figuring out where COVID goes next. I think that's probably all on our minds right now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, hopefully everybody else was safe and uh, uh, made good choices over the holiday weekend so we don't have too many spikes and cases and surges and everything else that was going on prior to the weekend so I think everybody was a little nervous about that but uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah I know um, quite a few of us will be watching those numbers to see what happened from the holiday weekend so hopefully we have nothing to worry about. Yeah the weather was good here I, I don't know about uh, other parts of the country but it was actually pretty nice uh, wasn't uh, like it had been scorching hot uh, and uh, we didn't really get rain that I recall. So it was good. Yeah, good. Well, I am super excited about our special guest today. Um, I believe that this is one of our first guests that we've had that um, we don't know really well personally. So it'll be fun to get to learn more about her. Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, We've had a lot of people on that are local, and so now we're going to have somebody who has been local, but is no longer local, and so this is going to be great. Yeah, so I want to introduce Ms. Pam Falk to our listeners. She is an outpatient infection preventionist and um, an education specialist for APIC, and that is the Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology. And she's also a member of the National COVID-19 Task Force. Welcome, Pam. How are you today? Hi, everybody. This is going to be great. I'm so excited to, to hear what's going on with you guys. And I'll tell you a little bit about me. Yeah, it's great to have you. We're super excited to have you on. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself. How'd you end up uh, where you are? Well, long time ago, when I was in college, which was a long time ago, I um, was actually a medical technologist and I was sitting in the laboratory and I was trying to learn how to be a microbiology med tech. I worked in the micro lab and this woman kept coming and this was the days before computers. That just shows how long ago it was. This lady would come into the office every day and she'd look at our books and she'd look at all the babies. And for some reason, all the babies were having staph aureus, staph aureus, staph aureus, staph aureus. And we noted in the laboratory that when we picked a colony, it was kind of crunchy. So for some reason, we were writing down in our lab book, crunchy staff, crunchy, crunchy, crunchy. And the, um, the, this woman who came in, she was fascinated by the fact that all these babies had this crunchy staff. And it's because she was taking that information back to her colleagues in the infection control department, and they were actually working up an outbreak. And they were using the information that I actually got from the blood cultures and the wound cultures and stuff from the babies. And they were doing outbreak investigation. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the whole world. So it just so happened that that lady resigned and I applied for her job and I got it. <laughs> 
So that's how I became an infection preventionist. Then I went on and got a master's in public health and, and healthcare epidemiology and CIC and all that kind of stuff. But that's kind of how I started all with the crunchy staff. That's a very interesting story. I never even thought to, to think about crunchy staff before, I guess. That's if you're a med tech, crunchy staff. So uh, in, in that process of you um, being a med tech and applying to become an infection preventionist, um, were you an RN at all? I am not a nurse, um, but I had already worked in infection prevention for a year, year and a half before I went to my graduate program at the University of Michigan. And um, I knew I wanted to do this. So I did a self um, kind of organized program. And so I took my own courses the way I wanted to take the courses. And I um, knew that I wasn't a nurse. And so I really focused a lot on epidemiology. So I am really an infectious disease epidemiologist. I really worked really hard on learning what I could learn to apply to a hospital setting. And my mentor, there are lots of PhDs, but I made sure my mentor was an MD, infectious disease, um, so I could relate to what I was doing. And my thesis had to do a seasonal variation of nosocomial infections. So, you know, it was very applied. So I have had a few problems over the years, not getting a few jobs or positions because I'm not a nurse. But the, you know, the best teams I've found over the years are people that have med techs and nurses on them together because we have very different skills. You know, I don't know how to put in a Foley catheter, but I know a heck of a lot about them and I know what the risk factors are and I can teach a lot about UTIs. Can I put one in? No, you know, but there's always a nurse around who can help me with that part and I can help them with the microbiology or some of the epidemiology. Yeah, I agree. I think that teamwork can work together. Um, as you mentioned, some of the things at the bedside that you would maybe have to do every day as an infection preventionist would be things that you would have had to learn kind of on the fly as opposed to going through school and having it almost become second nature. How, how difficult did you think that was coming from uh, the lab to something where you really have to know a fair amount of clinical things, you know, things that happen in the hospital and, and that kind of situations? I was very lucky. I was at the University of Michigan and I was actually employed by the infectious disease department as opposed to like quality or nursing or something. I actually worked for the ID doctors. And my job at the beginning was primarily surveillance. So my job was to learn a lot about medicine. So I would go to grand rounds every day. I would go on ID rounds with the doctors a couple, three times a week. And they would teach me all sorts of things that I didn't know. And I was just very embedded in the infectious disease department. So I learned from the physician's perspective, a lot about clinical infectious diseases. Then I took it upon myself to hang out on the nursing units. I would go and I would ask people, hey, would you show me how you put in a central line? Hey, would you show me how you put in a Foley? You know, can you make rounds with me? And I had a very unstructured job and they let me do a lot of learning, but this was back a long time ago and things were very different. But I would go in the ORs and I would learn things from that. And, and granted, they might not have been doing things the right way, but I at least was in there and looking. And then I could read. And then I'd go to lots of conferences and that kind of stuff too. But I'm very proactive, interactive kind of person. And I think that's really helped me over the years. That's awesome. It, I bet it was really interesting going to all of the grand rounds and following the ID docs around. Yeah, I did it for years and years and years. It was great. So how did you get into your role in APIC? 
um, well, it's kind of funny because since I was so ID oriented, I um, was actually a shame member. And I was one of the very first non-physician, non-PhD Shea members. There was like five of us that was in, that were inducted, I don't know, gosh, a long time ago now, but there were five of us. They just, we met the criteria. We had published, we had a master's degree. We had done, we had the letters from the docs. And now it's pretty easy to get it, be a Shea member. But back then, at first, you, you either had to be an MD or a PhD and that's it. Then they let a few of us in, and I was one of the top five, primarily because I worked for a very high-ranking physician who was an, on the Shea board, and he kind of let me in. So I did Shea stuff for a while, and then I was actually with um, some of the APIC, mem APIC uh, senior members, the president of Shea, because you know what? He should come over and work with us a little bit, you know? And I'm thinking, you know, I probably could help out APIC because you know, the, it's a little different. The Shea interaction and the APIC interaction are, are very different and what they want. And I said, okay. So um, they invited me in. They kind of like said, come on, help us. And then I just started doing stuff. And probably the biggest thing was Ebola. And I know that's, you know, Nebraska is really big in the whole Ebola um, prevention things. And I had worked on some bird flu projects and donning and doffing back several years before Ebola. I had a national grant. I went over the whole state of Texas and did that. And so APIC actually asked me if I would come and help do some Ebola training. There was a video that APIC put out and I was instrumental in doing that, writing some protocols. I was on the emergency team. And so Ebola, Ebola kind of got me in there and the education. And then I had several grants that I went all around the country and I helped with donning and doffing and prepping for Nebraska. I came to Nebraska. Um, so that's kind of how I got in Ebola. And now I do lots of education and stuff. <laughs> well, it certainly sounds like you found a great niche for yourself that you almost uh, kind of created your own uh, unique position in, in the world and whatnot, starting out in the lab. Let's go back just way back at the beginning. How did you end up uh, in the lab? Did you know you like microbiology? And what does a, you know, a, a kind of a lab microtech do? And how does one get to be that? Well, I was in the medical technology program at the University of Michigan. And, you know, you do rotations through hematology and coagulopathies and pathology. And I just kind of liked micro the best. And I didn't like the hematology. I didn't like, it's not that I didn't like them, you know, blood banking. I just kind of found microbiology and pathology. There was this wonderful pathologist who was the, our teacher for anatomy and physiology. And he invited us in for autopsies and hardly anybody went. I did. I, I want, I was curious, you know, I was a little sophomore in college and I'd never seen an autopsy before. And I thought that would be really cool to see one. So I went in because he invited us, the professor invited us and you can't do that these days, but back then you could. And so I went in and I saw some autopsies and I just thought the disease processes were so cool. And then there was a position, a weekend position in micro. And I took it. And so they taught me how to be a bench tech in microbiology. And I was still in school. And I did that on the weekends. And then when I got out of school, I worked there for not for very long because this lady came in and wanted to know about the crunchy staff and <laughs> I was out of there real quick. Good old shoe leather, leather epidemiology <laughs> that you like, right? Yep. 
get down to the bare bones and try to investigate where these things are coming from. I know the, the, the lab techs, they love to see how things look and how they feel. And, you know, I know it's probably not appropriate anymore, but how they smell and, you know, uh, all those stuff give people clues. And as an ID doc, we, we would go in and say, what do you think that is? Well, like, they'd be like, well, based on blah, 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 blah. I think it's probably this. And you got so good at <laughs> that sort of thing. It's a critical piece to um, epidemiology is knowing that thing. So, I mean, honestly, I think your point about having, you know, nurses that know the nursing stuff, but also having people that know microbiology inside and out is a key to a good team and, and nothing beats a good team. Yep, I agree. Yeah, I know um, we have, there are a couple of people on our ICAP team that are not RNs. And I think that that really, it really helps our team dynamic to get those different perspectives. Um, we have one gal that came from a lab tech background and then myself, I'm from the dental background. So um, we're able to bring in these differing opinions and observations and all work together to work through some things. So it's, I think it's really beneficial. Yeah, I wish um, APIC could do something, they tried, do something that would help the dynamic because there's still organizations that only hire nurses. And if you look at job requirements, it has to be a nurse. And I understand if it's a shared job where you're like over employee health and you're over infection prevention, because with employee health, you have to give medicines and that kind of stuff. And I obviously don't have a license to do that. But, but you know, I, I think most of the time, and actually I'm more qualified than most people, most RNs, you know, not all obviously, but a lot of them. And I'm not even considered. So Apex kind of trying to, run that by uh, people, but it's, it's a long road. Yeah, so for those of you that may not be familiar, APIC stands for Association of Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology, and SHEA is the Society of Hospital Epidemiologists of America. So a couple of big societies that uh, do a, a lot of things to help in infection prevention, uh, uh, either in the hospital where it kind of traditionally was started, but now it sounds like you do a fair amount of outpatient infection prevention, which is something that's been a little bit harder to wrap our hands around just because there's so many different places as well as there's not events in time like what you have a surgery. When you have a surgery, then you know when the date and time is. You have a catheter placed, you know the date and time of things. And so in the clinic, it's a little bit more difficult. But uh, tell us a little bit about your adventures there. Okay. Well, I've been doing outpatient infection prevention for about five years now. I mean, I did infection prevention in the inpatient world for 20, 25. I don't want to count them. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so um, we probably at my particular facilities, large facility, we have over 400 outpatient clinics and I have about 200 of them under me. So my job is to go around with my little checklist. That's what, how I kind of get in the door and I make sure everybody's got everything. I mean, these days with COVID, I make sure that the signage is appropriate. I make sure they have their appropriate PPE. Um, the biggest risk factors in the outpatient world or sterilization disinfection because the patients aren't really there very long. Most of the time, they're not that contagious per se. We do have to worry about some of the, you know, the COVIDs these days, but um, we look at their HLD, high level disinfection. We look at their sterilization issues. Sometimes they send their instruments from the clinic over to the hospital. And sometimes that has to be done by courier because it's not on the same campus or anything. 
Um, we look at the HLD, you know, the scopes. Um, are they doing that appropriately? We have these checklists and we do feedback and we spend a lot of time doing that. And then obviously lately with COVID, I've been like the doctor whisperer because the doctors have all these questions and they really want to do telemedicine and somebody's got to see the patients. And so we're trying to get the patients in to see the doctors or the providers as uh, much as they can. But there's lots of issues and we have lots of employees who are out with COVID. We have a fair amount of employees who are not vaccinated. We're not required to be vaccinated. Um, so there's a lot of challenges that way. So I'm pretty busy. You know, I don't, I have an office per se because I'm in the car most of the time, but um, I have a couple of computers and a phone. I'm good. Awesome. I think um, you bring up a really good point of, you know, the biggest challenges in outpatient settings. I've been working in outpatient for about a year now. Um, and we were just talking about this this morning on our team meeting because it's grant reporting time, right? Um, our biggest opportunity for improvement is the sterilization and disinfection, especially environmental cleaning in those facilities. Um, and it's really good that your facilities have you over them to kind of check mark those boxes and make sure they have everything they need and all the, the training. Yeah, APIC, I actually co-authored, APIC has a whole set of modules or like nine of them of infection prevention in the outpatient world. And they're very good. And they're very, they're written by two of us that actually do work. It's very different if somebody's on, you know, on the white ivory tower and they're trying to write a chapter or something about outpatient. But if you're actually there, makes all the difference in the world. Cause we had some people helping us and they weren't really working in that environment and they were missing the mark. It's not that they were wrong. It's just that they don't do that in outpatient world. We don't do this in outpatient world. So the APIC um, modules are very good. I, I think so. <laughs> You're not biased at all either, are you? No, no, no. <laughs> so I know that one of your big passions is education and you like to do some fun and quirky things when you educate people. Do you want to kind of give us a, a little bit of a peek into what that looks like? Sure. I mean, I've always, to begin with, because I was trained by ID docs, I learned how to do PowerPoint presentations. And I'd stand behind a podium and I'd do my little PowerPoint presentations and they were fine. I mean, I'm always pretty dynamic speaker, but they were actually kind of boring. So I got this grant with this physician and we go around the state of Texas. And I said, you know, this is really boring. We're going to have them go home with something. And this was about bird flu. And we taught them how to do a risk assessment and develop a emergency plan during a, a class. So all these people came, they sat in small groups, and I gave them a template. And by the end of the class, they had filled out the entire template that they could go home and take that piece of paper to their facilities and, um, and use that as a, uh, a springboard to actually writing an emergency management plan. So it was interactive. So that was the first thing I thought, this worked pretty well. And then it kind of morphed into all sorts of crazy things. So um, at National APIC, one year I did a donning and doffing fashion show <laughs> where we had correct and incorrect PPE. So I put somebody in gloves that had rips or a mask that was on a skew or you know a gown that was ripped. And then I'd put a boa around them and maybe a tiara. And they'd go out and they'd go on the catwalk as a fashion show. And then I would moderate. I'd say, okay, here's the lovely Susie. 
what's wrong? And then she'd show her gloves and they were ripped and everybody go, boo, boo, there's something wrong. Or, you know, she has on a gown, is this tied appropriately? Boo, it was very interactive. It was very visual. And that worked very well. And then the thing, the big thing I did at APEC a couple of years ago was I had Jeopardy. I took the whole Jeopardy game and I rewrote all the questions to be questions about contact isolation, about uh, HLD, about all sorts of different things. And then I put the people on the podium and I chose my participants very carefully. And I gave them names like Sid Pseudomonas. And then they had to wear a hat. And maybe they wore a hat that had C. diff. It was a C. diff hat. Or maybe it was something else. And we made it fun. And I would ask the audience for the answers to the question. And we made it very interactive. And we did that two years in a row. And it was very well received. It was in the middle of the APIC floor, the showroom floor where all the vendors were. And I had just hundreds of people crowded around my little area because I probably had maybe 50 chairs and there were just hundreds of people laughing and looking and trying to hear the answers and the questions and that was just really fun and people were learning because they didn't always know the answers some of the part the people who I had as uh moderators didn't know the answers like what you should know that but anyway <laughs> anyway so I like to do fun things like that I think adults are very busy and we're very tired and to give me a piece of paper to read and learn, I just don't learn that way anymore. Yeah, I think that would certainly make it more memorable. Um, the, the people that filled out their emergency plan, do you know if how many of them were able to get something going when they went back to their facilities? That would have been a really good idea, but I didn't. That was a long time ago. And that was the first time I ever did anything like that at a workshop. And they were very rural Texas places. And that's why we did it. It was a grant to get the information out to rural Texans. And they were all very excited about having a template to take back to their managers. Look, this is what we can do. And then I don't know, sorry. Would have been a good follow-up question. Yeah, probably like a lot of things in uh, preparedness, it's like out of sight, out of mind. Once that you know particular event moves on, then we kind of forget and put it in the background and then we end up with COVID and nobody's ready for it, right? Right. Well, at least they had a heads up because most of the time they would have just sat there and slept through the whole lecture and then would have gone home. So at least. You've given me so many ideas for, and I have a big national conference I'm speaking on for dentistry in February. So like trying to think of ways to make it more exciting. You know, a few years ago at APIC, we had like a little show and tell. And um, my part was about construction. And I took little pieces of construction stuff and I gave it to everybody in the audience. I only allowed 20 people, I think, in my class. And I gave somebody an aerator. I gave somebody um, a multi-dose vial. I gave all these different things. And I said, okay, you have a multi-dose vial, you in the audience. Tell me what what are the infection prevention risks with this? And they'd have to talk about taking the water, you know, the uh, alcohol off of it. It's a multi-dose vial, it needs to be dated. And like the aerators, people talked about, you know, making sure they need to maybe take them off. So we went around the room and it was very interactive. And sometimes people had no idea. I don't know what, what is the risk about multi-dose vials? I don't know. It was very interactive and it was wonderful. You could do that in dentistry too. Take up all these little instruments and what do you do? That would yeah, be the, fun. 
Yeah, it would be fun. The Jeopardy thing hits home with me because I used to do that actually when I was chief resident and attended on service. I used to have a Jeopardy thing that I would give for the residents, interns, and students. So I used to do that every month that I was on. So I, I think that's always a, a great idea to just, I had these little little sheets made up that I had the you know questions on and knew yep. the answers and uh, it was always fun. Yeah. Yeah, so I try to do lots of stuff like that. I use, have pictures, I have little germs, anything to get people so they're not going to fall asleep. Because we are busy people and, you know, we're just, we're going to fall. You sit us down and we fall asleep. Yeah, I know. When I was uh, an educator, I had a classroom of about 15 students and we would play this game in the dental clinic where um, if I saw an infection control breach, you know, like someone wasn't wearing gloves or they didn't have their mask on or whatever, I had a little plush uh, HIV virus. So whoever had that infection control breach, they got HIV until the next person got it. And we would mm -hmm. pass it around. They would have to carry HIV around in their pocket for the rest of the class. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was fun. It's always uh, always uh, trying to figure out novel ways to educate is always difficult to, to keep people engaged as you're, as you're saying. So. Um, big in education, how do we get uh, young people to be interested in what you do and what we do uh, to try to keep a, you know, a next generation of infection preventionists or public health or, you know, uh, 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 bioterrorism type programs? How do we keep that going? One of the things that I've noticed is there's, you know, this is the age of computers and computers are not my forte because I'm a little bit older but almost all the people that now work with me and my big system, it, they're all very computer literate and they love to do that kind of stuff. You know, they love all the Excels and the accesses and all those databases and the Theradox and the MedMinds. And I mean, they love that kind of stuff. And so if you kind of, and a lot of, we hire a lot of masters in public health type people and they are already very computer literate and they know SAS and they know Excel and they can use it and they can sit down and this is something they can do. And they, you know, and some of them work from the health department and that's a good breeding ground for infection preventionists. So you can really tap into their, their um, computer skills, that helps. Um, it is a little tough right now because um, COVID is just burning everybody out. But um, the computer skills are one of them. And um, a, lot, they, a lot of places have, you know, online tr training programs. And that's, if you can get somebody into that, and then, you know, there's a CIC certification, and now there's a, a lesser certification, a little easier one that you can get as a, a precursor to that. So the more we can get people into programs and get them trained and not just throw them out there, because when I was brand new, I was just thrown out there. Here, they didn't even have definitions of infection when I started. Here, is this a pneumonia? Sure, check, pneumonia. So, um, you know, the more tools we can give them, the more education, the more mentoring programs, um, the better. Yeah, and I think the, uh, the novel ways of educating uh, gets people interested as, as you've been trying to do, make them think. Uh, uh, and then, you know, find something that they might enjoy out of it. Like you found your career by, you know, being in, in microbiology and seeing the epidemiologists come in and look at the crunchy staff. And so somebody has got to find their crunchy staff and figure out what they want to do with their life. Right. That's right. And we are the weirdos that like the gross things, right? I know. 
It's funny though, because my mother tells a story. And when I was a small child, um, my dad made us me a sandbox. And I did not want to go into the sand. I didn't like sand, the feeling of the sand. And I went to a neighbor's house and the neighbors had rocks. They had a rock box and it was all these rocks. And I loved the rock box and I hated the sandbox. So, you know, talking about getting dirty and stuff, I don't really like to get dirty. <laughs> so, but I loved the rock box, the explaining, the exploration, but I didn't like to get dirty. So I guess I wanted to wash my hands. I guess so. Hand hygiene, right, Dr. Stone? There you go. Mm -hmm. Hand hygiene makes the epidemiology world go round, that's for sure. That's right. There you go. <laughs> so I know you are a very big, uh, big player in the APIC game right now. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of being involved in your association, whatever, for whatever profession you're in? Yeah, so I'm uh, the chair of the education committee for the um, for my particular chapter. I'm on the national APIC education committee, and I'm on the COVID task force. And really, it's all about getting the word out because, again, I don't. I think sometimes people just want to give a lecture, and they're so boring. And they, even webinars, they're just you sit behind the chair and you just talk. And that's I guess why I wanted to be involved. I wanted to have more interactive, more fun. And so I think if we can bring those people in, that will help. So if you have a passion for something, if you think you can help, like I just thought we needed to teach people differently. I guess that's why I got on the education committee or, you know, there's the membership committee and there's the, um, the national uh, committee for the national seminar, um, conference. There's lots of different committees. And if there's something that just kind of tweaks your fancy, you know, get involved. Start at the local chapter. There's all sorts of things. There's, you know, if you're really good with mem with numbers, maybe you could be treasurer and you get to meet people. Um, I was the mentor for three beginning infection preventionists just because I was the education chair. They all called and they said, we don't really know what to do with our lives. We just got this job and we don't really know what to do with our lives. Can you help us? So I mentored the three of them and they got to be kind of friends. And then I don't need to mentor them anymore. I've kind of taken them off. So get involved in something and it'll help. It'll help your professional career. I think raising your hand uh, certainly helps. Uh, there's uh, opportunities out there. If you just are interested and show interest in, in doing more, you can certainly find something that you find very valuable. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and I think too, if you're if you're really passionate about it, it's fun, right? It's not necessarily work, but it can be fun as well. So, so outside of educating the world and and, and everything in APIC, uh, what else does Pam Falk like to do? I'm a, a rower. I crew, and so um, that's kind of an important thing for me to wherever I live, I have to have a river or a lake or wherever to crew. I used to compete. I don't compete anymore just because there's a lot of training involved. So I just go out, I'm hoping to do it this afternoon. Um, you go out on the river and I go out in singles sometimes, mostly doubles and quads. I don't like eights. And I just go out and have fun. I ride my bike. I swim almost every morning and um, that's enough right there with my job. Well, that awesome. sounds that sounds awesome. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
being near a river or a lake certainly is never a bad thing, right? Uh, I can't say that I've ever done it um, on a river or lake. I, I, you go to the gym and you have the rowing machine. That's about as far as I've gotten. <laughs> right. And most of the time, I just cringe when I watch people on the rowing machine because most of the time they're doing it wrong and they're using their back. And I just want to say, oh my God, you're going to hurt your back because rowing <laughs> is a, a leg sport. But, you know, it's none of my business. I don't want to, you know, disturb their workout. But, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but you're a helper. You have to, right? I mean, that's I, what I, you it's do. It's very hard not to. <laughs> I can just see Pam standing in the corner of the gym, judging everyone silently. <laughs> it's very true. Very true. <laughs> watching them walk off and see if they do their hand hygiene after a, after a, right. a, a rotation of where they're at. <laughs> Make sure they go back and disinfect their rowing machine. Right. That's why I, I go to the gym and I swim, but I don't use any of the machines. I'm not, I'm not going there yet. Yeah. I mean, I realize COVID is not transmitted that way. It's just that they're all breathing and hacking and coughing and I don't, I'm just going to swim and go home. <laughs> they may not have the best, best ventilation in the world. Right. Right. Agreed. Yeah. So PM, are you uh, reading or binge watching anything right now? That's fun. Oh, I just watched this thing called on Netflix called click bait. And it was very good. It's like a murder mystery whodunit kind of thing, but it's got a little computer twist to it. That was really good. Uh, that's what we just finished. I've heard that was good. Somebody told us to watch that. So you're the second uh, person oh. that's uh, recommended that. So I think we'll have to check that out. Yeah, check that out. Yeah, it's got like eight episodes. It was, it was good. And we just finished watching Ted Lasso. Have you watched that yet? It looks a little silly for me. It, it is silly. silly. It is yeah. silly, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> okay. It's a good kind of like tune out and just laugh kind of show. There you go. Yeah. It's, it's got some parts where you're just, you're, you're, you have to laugh. It's pretty good. It's almost <laughs> like Jason Sudeikis. It's like this character was made for him. That's funny. <laughs> that is funny. So a question we ask all of our guests, um, what is the craziest thing you've ever seen in your career? Um, that's a really hard question. Cause I've seen all sorts of stuff. Um, Oh, this might be this. Okay. So I was at a hospital once and this patient, this man um, came into the emergency department and he was covered with sores. Let's just call them sores. And of course, everybody was scared to death about what he had. And they thought maybe it was leprosy. I mean, you know, it, it could, it, this, because that's what people think. There was all these sores and people thought it was MRSA and all this kind of stuff and it was everywhere and dermatology came and they put him in a corner and he was ostracized and he wasn't quite homeless but he was very close to it and um it turned out he had syphilis wow. and it was just everywhere because they call syphilis the great uh, imitator and um it was the worst case of syphilis i'd ever seen but of course they had me down there because they thought this patient had I don't know what they thought he had, you know, leprosy, which isn't really that contagious, but that's what everybody was worried about. And um, thank God for some really smart people. And um, the man had a really bad case of syphilis. 
you've been out driving around uh, West Texas, it sounds like. So you've probably ran into some armadillos that might've had leprosy other than that, yeah. really. Yeah. And I do. And I do, because that's, I guess what made me think about it. We do have armadillos there. Yeah. <laughs> So where all in the world has uh, your career taken you? It sounds like you've traveled around a fair amount and been to various uh, interesting locations. Well, I've been to, I started, I grew up in Michigan. So I worked at the University of Michigan. I worked in Memphis. I worked in North Carolina. I worked in a couple places in Texas. I worked in Florida and now I work in Georgia. So, and when I travel internationally, let me tell you, I bring a lot of different drugs. I went to Armenia with mm -hmm. the World Health Organization on a very basic primary care kind of a mission trip. We had a, a sisterhood with that um, particular Yerevan in Armenia. And my job was basically hand hygiene, which was really hard considering they had no running water and they did, all they had was like a cotton towel. So everybody would, the little water they had, they'd wash their hands and they'd all dry their hands on the same towel. <laughs> that probably made you cringe a little. Yeah. And I walked into this one room that this man was so proud because he had blue light. It was a, like a, it was a tuberculosis clinic and he was in there all by himself and it had blue lights up in the ceiling. And he was so proud because that blue light was going to protect him from any kind of tuberculosis. But the ventilation was awful in that room because they had broken windows and it was freezing in there. The blue lights hadn't been changed in like 10 years. <laughs> so there was probably no UV light being emitted, but there was so much ventilation in that room because of the broken windows. I wasn't very worried about it. So, and then I went to this um, IV clinic and they were um, drawing blood. And what they did is they had a chair and a hole in the wall. And the patient was supposed to stick their arm in the hole in the wall. And there was a tech on the other side and they would draw blood on the other side. So you wouldn't have to see the needle being put into your arm. Okay. Well, you go to the other side and you look at the hole, there was blood splattered all over the inside of the wall from where blood and they never cleaned. it. So, wow. Those are, I'd forgotten about, those were some of the craziest things I've ever seen <laughs> more than syphilis. <laughs> no syphilis can get pretty crazy though so yeah, yeah. but where else yeah. have you been besides armenia any other who adventures um, not for um work but you know i've been to egypt and i've been to fiji and lots of places on vacation um i do a lot of scuba diving been to the red sea been to fiji been to the great barrier reef and um i thought i had mycobacterium um perinicia but it turned out to be staff. I was kind of disappointed <laughs> that I got in Fiji, but it's all right. That's funny. Is only he... only an IP med tech would be disappointed that they don't have I know. some crazy I know. I know. disease. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a few mycobacterium marinums. One of the things that, that I do is with non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections. So me and one of my colleagues, so that's a, that would be right up our alley. It would, we'd be glad to uh, try to figure that out for you if that uh, happens, yeah. but hopefully not, you know, I never wish an infection on anybody. I know, but I was all excited. Like, Oh, what is this? And I made them culture it. And the doctor's going, no, it's staff. I said, no, no, no. I've been in the ocean. It's mycobacterium marinum. I just know it is. And I made him do the cultures and wait for the whole six weeks and everything. It was staff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> common things being common, right? Uh, I know. <laughs>
Well, any, um, any questions for us or anything uh, that, uh, has, that we haven't made it through? Well, I have a question about your, um, so when you guys were doing Ebola, I was watching with, you know, great advance. And I actually came to your facility to Nebraska to look at your program and look at your units and stuff. And that was fascinating. So I'm curious about COVID. Are you using your emergency plans? Are you using any of your units for COVID? What kind of correlation and, and how are the IPs um, involved? Yeah, so great question. So early on um, when it was still kind of in a containment type situation, um, then we were using the biocontainment unit for the very initial cases, although it was pretty clear early on that this really wasn't a containment type thing. It was going to be more of a mitigation uh, uh, type response. So we used a lot of it early on, did, um, um, you know, uh, we're able to do studies on, uh, you know, how much of it was in the air and how far it would spread and all that kind of thing. We were able to use that at the National Quarantine Center as well with some of the initial arrivals from uh, the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Um, early on, I mean, and, and throughout this, I mean, infection prevention has been very involved. If we've had cases in the hospital that might be, you know, concerned about transmission, you know, doing a lot of uh, investigations, very involved in, uh, in writing all of our protocols uh, and things that, that we do. We've been, we were concerned very early on about uh, the impact of ventilation. And so um, the infection prevention team and medical directors did a lot as far as converting floors and rooms and everything to negative pressure and appropriate uh, attire for colleagues. We've been very uh, strong with uh, uh, N95s for you know, confirmed cases and PUIs and eye protection and, and those kinds of things. So infection prevention has really been at the forefront of everything that we've done here. As you can imagine, I mean, at a place that had Ebola patients, um, we had some infrastructure already, um, and, as well as not knowing the transmission dynamics of this, we were really aggressive at first. And then as, as we've learned more, then we've been able to you know, figure out the best way to care for patients. And I can honestly tell you, we haven't had any significant uh, nosocomial transmission at our facility. I think a large part because we were very aggressive up front and made lots of uh, decisions to protect our staff and colleagues and, and everybody that came in contact with uh, patients that were either PUIs or actually positive with COVID. Cool. I'm glad you work together. When I'm out and about, I, I hear lots of times that the ID docs and the IPs aren't working together. And I ask a question, I said, well, don't you know your infectious disease physicians? And they say no. So I think that's excellent. I think that's one of the take home notes is it's, it's a team and you need the ID docs and you need the IPs and you need the people in the lab and you need the nurses on the floor and everybody needs to work together. Yeah, I'm also medical director for employee health here at Nebraska mm -hmm. Medicine. So that was a big component to this whole thing as well is how are we going to know that we're keeping our, our staff safe and, and uh, you know, what's a way to test them and get them back to work and, you know, all those sorts of things. So that's been a major part of this that I think a lot of facilities had struggled with because they don't have quite the you know, occupational employee health infrastructure that we had already because, again, Right when the first patients arrived, we worked closely with the health department and we, we had a system in place where people were measuring their temperatures, you know, at the beginning of shift, they were reporting symptoms, it was reported out electronically, and, you know, and all this stuff that we would do for something like with a highly infectious agent like Ebola that we were doing at the beginning when it was in the containment phase, which we had to quickly abandon once we had way too many 
kinds of exposures and patients, but, right. but it was still something that we did early on that uh, I think had value because we learned a lot and we were able to then apply what we learned. Right. Cool. Interesting. Good, good work. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. Starlin, do you have any more questions for Pam? I don't think so. I'm super delighted that she joined us. It was a, a great conversation hearing a lot about her adventures and how she's a, a unique educator in the world of infection prevention. Yeah, we are really grateful for Pam to spend an hour with us and chat and tell us her story. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Yeah. yeah. Thank Take you. Take care. Have a good swim okay, or, or, or crew today. Okay. And Bye. then for all of our listeners out there, go ahead and give us a follow on Twitter and a review if you would be so inclined, and we will catch you on the next episode of Dirty Drinks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Dirty Drinks. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends if they enjoy Dirty Drinks. <laughs>